Well, good morning, Grace family. I pray that you are doing well this morning. Beautiful time of worship, and God is good. And this is the day He's made, right? Well, I'm excited to be with you this morning as we begin a new series in the book of Hebrews. I always like uh, starting something new because it reminds me that God's mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. And He's the God of new beginnings all the time, every day, every moment. So how many of you need a new beginning? All right. Well, God's given it to us right now. So we're going to be in the book of Hebrews now for the next five weeks. And some of you might say, Hebrews? Why the book of Hebrews? Well, first of all, it is the Word of God. And second of all, we really felt prompted as a team to go into the book of Hebrews. Third of all, because it's generally a book that's avoided by people. And at Grace Fellowship Church, we seem to have this knack of like picking hard stuff and taking the hand of Jesus and just running headfirst into it. Praise God. God. So we're going to take a look at this book that is often um, kind of labeled as difficult teaching. It's difficult teaching. It troubles a lot of people. It stirs us. And so we're going to trust Jesus to reveal new things to us in the book of Hebrews and remind us of things that we already know that we just need to be reminded of. I think it's C.S. Lewis that said he frankly thought that most of us didn't need to be taught anything new. We just need to be reminded of the things we already know. So let's pray to that end now together, please. Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word that is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We come to this time now with great expectation of what you will do in and through us. Give us listening ears and open hearts, God. Transform us, Lord God, and wash us in your word. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said. So I want to give you a little grid this morning for you to look at the scripture through. This was given to me by Rick Warren probably 25 years ago or something like that. But it's a little saying that I think helps encapsulate what God is trying to say to you. So I'm going to say it first. God provides, protects, guides, and corrects. Can you say that with me? God provides, protects, he guides, and he corrects. So God provides everything that you need. Now, he doesn't give you everything you want, because frankly, if you had everything you wanted, you'd probably be in bad shape. But he does give you everything you need. Listen to the scripture, says this in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack for nothing. He says here also that his divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us to his glory and goodness. So he provides everything we need. The Lord also protects us. Listen to David. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. God is your hiding place. How many of you as a kid like to find places to hide? Did you want to find that place that was just yours, that nobody else knew about, it was kind of secret, and you could crawl up in there and you could hide in there, especially from the parental units? They wouldn't know where you were. And you know what happened in that place? For me, it was a tree house, or for me, it was other places. It made me feel safe. It made me feel like I had a place to go and hide. Can I tell you that God is your refuge and that he is your hiding place? He is the one who protects you. So he not only provides, but he protects. And then he guides you. Listen to this very popular verse from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. See, the Lord says, look to me 
And I will be a guide for you. Listen to Jeremiah 6.16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. How many of you want rest for your souls? You see, God is the one who guides. So he provides, he protects, he guides, and he corrects. Now, how many of you want God to provide for you? You love it when God provides for you. How many of you want God to protect you? How many of you love it when God guides you? How many of you want him to correct you? (laughs) Some of the more enlightened ones are like, please, God, correct me. We listened to a song on staff here a little while back by Shane and Shane called Psalm 46. Dial it up. It is an anthem for the glory of God. Shane and Shane, Psalm 46. It has a really beautiful line in it. It says, God, come wrestle us and win. God, come to me and knock my hip out of joint. Because my ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far your ways are above my ways. God, come wrestle me and win. Don't let me win. Don't let me have my way, God. Because I know where my way leads. But I know your way is so much better. This question is, can you, can you honestly before God say, God, come wrestle with me. Come correct me, God. Why would anybody say something like that? Why does God do these things? He provides, he protects, he guides, he corrects. I'll tell you why. Because he loves you. You know this little song. It was taught to you probably when you were really little, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Sing it with me. For the Bible tells me so. Him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. There is a world of theology in that little song. And the foundation on which you stand is that God loves you. You have to understand that this scripture that we look to is a love letter written to you. How many of you ever wrote a love letter? Even in kindergarten, you know? Susie likes Jimmy. Pass it down, right? And then, you know, you'd see Jimmy get it and snake, get a snicker and, you know, snort or do something and run away. And then maybe in later in life, you, you've written love letters to those whom you love. I think love letters are something that we need to write more of. Not just to those who we love romantically, but to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think we need to be writing love letters to each other. I'll tell you, when I get a love letter from someone, especially my precious bride, like it just my, my whole soul lifts up. Love letters are beautiful things, and God has written you a love letter. And God's love is your guiding hermeneutic. And some of you are like, oh yes, my guiding hermeneutic. You know what a guiding hermeneutic is? It's something that some seminary professor made up so that people in seminary sound smarter than everybody else. And all it means is a guiding principle. When you go to the Word of God, you look at the preponderance of Scripture because there are passages in the Scripture that confuse the best of us. And I want you to know something about Hebrews. I do not stand before you as someone who claims to understand everything that is in this letter. There's a lot I do not understand. And all of us will say that on the team. There's a lot in the book of Hebrews and the whole of the scripture that we do not understand. But you can trust God's heart even when you can't trace his hand. But you've got to know his heart. 
That's called a guiding hermeneutic. That's a principle that you can take throughout the entire Scripture and say, based on the preponderance of Scripture, that's the number of Scriptures that communicate something, I know this, I know God loves me. And I know His love endures forever. And I know He's the same yesterday, today, and always. And I know His love for me will never be taken. Height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in all of creation can ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I know that. And if you know that, that will inform the way that you look to the rest of the love letter. Because there are hard things in the love letter. The love letter does provide for us. It does protect. He speaks of that. He talks about his guidance. But he also talks about his correction. How many of you like to hear somebody say to you, no, you can't have that? Got one. So... Here's the thing. I want to first of all say, parents, if you're here today, please tell your children no. Learn to tell your children no. If you tell them yes in everything, you are hurting them. You're wounding them. Why? Because God says no to us. And God is the the ultimate parent. He's the father in heaven. He's the one who loves us more than anybody else. And he says no. And I'm like, but God. He says, I love you. No. No. It's a one-word sentence, and it has a period after it. And if you're God, you don't need to explain yourself any further. No. One of the ways in which we destroy our children is to let them have their way in all things. By the grace of God, Tracy and I raised our kids to know that no meant no most of the time. (laughs) We allowed them to reason with us, and there were times where they were right. And we said no, and they said, but can I say something? Sure, go ahead. And then they would present a very good argument, and we go, you know what, you're right. Okay, yes. Or we'd say, maybe. There were certain things that we decided we were going to say yes to every time our children asked us. If it got them closer to Jesus, we were going to do the best we could to say yes. One of our kids came to us and said, I want to go to a concert tonight, and it's a worship concert, and I, and I want to hear from this band who's speaking of Jesus. We're going to do everything we can to help you get there, kid. I want this book. I want a new Bible. I want this book that speaks about Jesus. I want a new Bible. I want this. I want that. You know, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to help you grow closer to the Lord. But there were things that we had to say no to them about, and God says no to us. He corrects us because he loves us. The book of Hebrews, in large part, is a book of correction. Because the Hebrew believers were straying back into old ways that were not of Christ. They were going back to old ways of religion in the old covenant, and they were forsaking the new covenant, which the writer says is far better than the old covenant. Jesus is supreme above all things. And we're going to get into that in a little while. But I have to impress upon you that God does love you. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines everyone he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a child. Scripture goes on to say, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. It's very important for us to understand. As I said, I think we should write more love letters, and I went poking around for love letters this week, and I found one. In 1990, a guy named Ken Burns produced a series on the Civil War for PBS. And in doing so, he sifted through all kinds of old photographs that had to do with the Civil War, letters, maps, diaries, historical records, memoirs. And in search, he came across an outstanding letter written by a union major named Sullivan Ballou. And Sullivan wrote this letter to his wife back home. 
And I happen to think it's one of the most outstanding love letters that I've ever read. So I'm going to read some of it to you. It's dated July 14th, 1861. Camp Clark, Washington, D.C. Dearest Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Unless I should not be able to write to you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or a lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans on the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us and through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. But Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It binds me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I have enjoyed with you comes crowding over me, and I feel most deeply grateful to God and to you that I have enjoyed them for so long. And how hard it is for me to give them up and burn the ashes, the hopes and future ears, when God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. I have and I know but few and small claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me, perhaps it is the wafted prayer of our little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. But if I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults, and the many pains I have caused you, how thoughtless and how foolish I have sometimes been, how gladly I would wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness. But, oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit around unseen to those whom they love, I shall always be near you in the gladdest day and in the darkest night, always, always. And if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, Sarah, it will be my breath. And as the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou died in the first battle of Bull Run. Now, Ken Burns kept this letter in his pocket throughout the entire time he was producing this miniseries because he wanted to remind himself of the lives of those in this battle and how it affected marriages and families. He wanted to capture the heart of this man. Now, we could use Sullivan's letter to study history, and we could use it as a springboard to talk about civil war and the issues over which they fought. We could use it to study geography and map out places like Camp Clark, Washington, where the letter originated. Or we could focus on the military references, just as the revolution, and compare and contrast the two wars. We could do word studies of the words like wafted and find out what they meant. In essence, we could dissect the letter in any of these ways and miss the whole point entirely. The letter certainly has meaning to a historian. It has a different meaning even to a linguist and an entire different meaning to a filmmaker. And each one is valid for study. But the ultimate meaning of the letter can be found only in the intimate relationship between the lover and the beloved. 
The primary context in which the words should be evaluated is in the context of that relationship. Apart from that context, these words may educate me or enlighten me, and they can even move me, but they will never pierce my heart the way that they pierce the heart of Sarah. They will never be treasured the way that she treasured them. They will never be remembered the way she remembers them. They won't be passed on to her children or our children the way they would be passed on to hers. You understand the Bible is first and foremost a love letter to you and to me. You can dissect it. You can look at it historically. You can try and do word studies. But until you hear the voice of God calling to you, I love you. I love you. You are missing the whole point. I want to read to you a little paraphrase of Jesus' words to the disciples. This is John 14 through 17. And I want you to kind of listen for the resemblance. I'm going into battle soon. I don't want your heart to be troubled. It's love for my Father's country that sends me. I'm leaving, but I won't leave you alone. I'm going to send my spirit to breeze across your brow when you need comfort, to whisper to you of how much I love you. I shall always be near you in the gladdest and the darkest of nights. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you because I want you to be with me forever and always because I love you. I really do. I love you. See, if you hear Scripture like a love letter, you are going to be captivated and captured by the person of God. And even when things get hard, you're going to get confused at times, but you're going to go, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. So this must be in my best interest because he wants more for me than I want for myself. Can you say that with me? He wants more for me than I want for myself. You see, he wants more for you than you want for yourself. He wants more for me than I want for myself. So I entrust myself to his love, to his care, to his protection, his provision, his guidance, and his correction. So in the book of Hebrews, we find this primary letter of exhortation. That's a word that we use when we talk about a gift that people often have. They say that person has the gift of exhortation. But we also all are called to exhort one another, to admonish one another, to challenge one another. This word at its roots means to encourage, to infuse with courage. I always think of the lion when I hear that from... What's that movie? Courage. Not Lion King. Wizard of Oz, yeah, courage, right? I was thinking that, but how many of you need more courage to live in the world? This place is a dark place. And God wants to infuse you with courage to live for the cause of the kingdom. So we are called to encourage one another daily as long as it's day. That's in the book of Hebrews. But to encourage, to challenge, and correct. The root verb is to incite to action. So when you are admonished by God, when you're exhorted by God, when you're actually addressed by him, challenged and corrected by him, he's saying, look, you're not living the way that I want you to live. I want you to trust me and follow me in this way. I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty stubborn guy. And I think the writer of Hebrews, by the way, we don't know who this was. There's lots of guesses, but nobody knows who wrote this letter. The writer of Hebrews was speaking to those that were Jewish in nature who had come to Christ. These are believing people, but they were kind of going back to their old ways. They were slipping away 
And, and there are five primary exhortations in the book of Hebrews that I want to give to you as a way of overview. Now, understand something. We're just surveying this book. There's no way we can go through the book of Hebrews in five weeks. What we're challenging you to do is take a little bit that you learn here and go home and go deep with the Lord. Open the word of God and pray in the spirit of God that God would bring revelation to you. Surely your life will never be the same if you encounter the word of God that way. The scripture says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now look, if you have cancer, how many of you want the doctor to cut it out? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm not sure. Surgery is never something that you really want to sign up for, right? I mean, the thought of actually somebody cutting into you, I don't find that, like, comforting. But the, after, the outcome of it is what I want. The outcome of it is that I'm going to be free from the disease. God has a scalpel, and he is the master surgeon. And his scalpel is called the Word of God. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and he wants to pierce you with it. You're like, he loves me? And he wants to cut me? Yes. He wants to pierce your heart the way that Sullivan's letter pierced the heart of Sarah. He wants to move you with his deep love for you and understand that you can trust him. Can I help you understand something? All sin stems from the belief that God is not good. All sin stems from the belief that God is not good. And what God wants you to do is trust him. He wants you to trust his love for you so that when you can't trace his hand, you can know his heart. And you say, God, I don't really understand what's going on in my life right now. I don't really understand what's going on in your word right now. But I trust your heart for me. You love me. So I'm once again, God, going to surrender myself to your scalpel. I'm going to let you cut me, God. Because I know you're taking stuff out of me that doesn't belong there. And you want to see me free. So these Hebrews, they were, they were drifting. And that's the first thing we want to talk about. They're drifting from the word of God. That's in, in 2 verses 1 through 4. Listen to this one reference. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away. Let me give you a truth. You're either moving forward in your faith or you're sliding backward, but you're never standing still. Doesn't that stink? I most of the time think, well, God, I, I've done some really good things with you of late. I can just coast for a while. And he goes, no, no, don't you know this already? That when you coast, you're always going downhill. Have you ever seen anybody coast uphill? Cars and people do not coast uphill. So the Lord says, we're supposed to seek him. And when we seek him, we'll find him. This is called spiritual discipline. And see, what happens when you drift away is you neglect your time with God. Now look, this is very important in the culture in which we live because we are very, very busy people. And busyness, most often, is the work of the evil one. And so you can get so overwhelmed by life, you think all these things are important. Who was it that said Martin Luther, I think, said this? He said, I have so many things to do today that I couldn't possibly get by without at least four hours in prayer. You know why that's so wise? Because God is the redeemer of time. 
I'll tell you, I guarantee this, we as elders have put this thing to the test because we practice the presence of God in every meeting that we're in, and we spend time in prayer, significant time in prayer. I've been in elder meetings where we pray for an hour and a half, and we have an agenda of like 50 items. Now, that seems a little insane, does it not? Can I tell you what God has shown us? If we pray for an hour and a half, those 50 things somehow magically just like get taken care of. We work for another hour in this list of things, and we're like, how did they get done? You know how? By the grace of God. So dedicate yourself unto the Lord, because if not, you're going downhill. You're like, well, I don't really have to go spend time in His Word. I'll just love people. Can I tell you something? That's deceitful. A lot of people are being very deceived right now for what they think is love, but it's really sin. Why? Because the culture is twisting the Word of God. The enemy always uses the word of God against the God of the word. Do you not know this? He takes a little bit of it and he twists it. He makes something in with it. It sounds like it's very loving, but in essence, it's not. So when I say disciplined, I'm not saying that we don't rest in the Lord. If you look at the book of the Hebrews, he talks about entering the Sabbath rest of God. Listen to chapters 4, 9 through 11. There, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore, listen, make every effort to enter that rest. What is he saying? He's saying there's work for you to do in order to run, enter the rest of God. And that means you're supposed to be disciplined to go to God in his word and not drift away from that practice. God's voice speaks to you through the Spirit and in His Word. And His Word is the primary way in which God speaks to you. If you're not going to God through His Word, you are missing out. And may I dare say, you're not growing at the rate God could be growing you if you're not spending time with Him and His Word. That's the first one, drifting. The second one is doubting. And this is the hardened heart. Uh, chapter 3, 7 through 4, 4, 13. What I mean here is, I go, but I don't believe what I hear and what I read. I let the culture twist the truth of God, and I get hardened to the truth. So listen, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we have hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As just has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. So look, you're supposed to have a tough skin in this world, but you're supposed to have a soft heart to the things of God. And you're supposed to be receptive to them. Now, I don't know about you, but there's stuff I read in there that I don't like. Anybody say amen to that? There's times where I've faced very difficult things in the scripture, and I go, is there anybody else up there that I can talk to? Or I want to flip the page and say, well, let's just go somewhere else, somewhere that's easier. I tell you something, if you open the Word of God and something hits you that's hard, God is trying to get your attention. Don't go away from it. Take His hand and walk toward it. But let me warn you, He's going to cut you. He's going to pierce you. He's got some surgery to perform in your life. I've told you this story before, but I thought I'd share it again this morning because it came to mind. I was in grad school at Peabody Conservatory of Music. That sounds very, you know, lofty and all that stuff. It really wasn't. A bunch of pride and ego and all that stuff there. And I was in, uh, you know, a class taking a very difficult exam. 
One that I was relatively prepared to take, but not as prepared as I would have liked to. And so I'm in my 20s, and what I decide to do, I decide to cheat by looking on the paper of the person next to me. Now, I probably could have got an 80 or so if I hadn't done that, but because I did that, I got in the 90s. But I was new in Christ. This is my first year with Jesus. I didn't really know what this whole relationship was about. Still don't, but I know more now than I did then. So I go back home to my apartment, and all of a sudden, my heart starts feeling heavy. Why is my heart feeling heavy? I've cheated on tests before, and it's never bothered me before. Guess what? God is now with me. Guess what? God is now for me. Guess what? God now wants to cleanse me. So I start feeling this weight in my soul, and I'm like, God, why am I so upset over this? And what should I do? What should I do? So I did the open and poke method. Anybody ever do that? Flipped open the scripture and poked my finger, and I looked, and it said, confess your sins to each other and pray that you might be healed. I said, I'm not doing that. He said, Jeff, Jeff, do you want to be free? Yes, God, but I don't want to do that. Jeff, do you trust me? I love you. I love you. Follow me, Jeff. Die to self. Die to self-protection. Follow me. Jeff, descend into greatness with me. Humble yourself before me, Jeff, and I will lift you up in due time. And I went, oh, God. So I decided to go and confess my sin. I confessed it to the person that was a friend of mine, whom I cheated from, and I confessed it in other places as well. And as I did that, I felt a wave wash over my soul. He said, Jeff, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Jeff, I want you to boast all the more gladly about your weaknesses so that my power may rest on you. He was cleansing me. And I began to realize that I could confess my sin to those in the body of Christ in such a way that I realized Jesus died for it all. And I no longer needed to live that way. I was free to fail tests. You know why? My identity no longer is based on a test. My identity is based on who I am in Christ Jesus. And guess what? I'm a child of God. I don't care if I fail a million tests or what you even say about me. You can never take that from me. Never. But i got to be honest with you, many of us are hardening our heart towards God's word because, frankly, we just don't like what it says. I go, but I don't really believe what I read and I'm here, and I allow it to get twisted, and I harden my heart towards God. How about you? In Christ, we're called to have a heart that's open to the word of God. Number three, we're dull towards the word. Meaning, I may go, but I'm slow to learn and apply the truth of God to my life. Listen to the Hebrews 6.11. If we, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Like soft land that soaks up rain, God wants you to be open to joyfully receiving his word into your soul. So many of us become dull, which means we're slow to act on it. We don't believe, we we, kind of go to the word, we hear the word, and we go, I'll get to that someday, God. I venture that some of you in here have probably been hearing from God for months or years about something in your life, and you haven't taken care of it yet. Can I beg you to go? Can I tell you there's times in my life where I heard a word from God and it took me 10 years to go? 
There was a kid that I grew up with. His name was Rob Rockwell. I love Rob. But he was different than the other kids, and he got picked on a lot. I didn't really necessarily pick on Rob, but you know what I didn't do? I didn't do anything when he got picked on. And there were many times where the older kids circled around Rob, and they would kick him, and they would spit on him, and they would call him names. And can I tell you what? I was afraid to do anything. I wanted to be Rob's friend. I wanted them to like him, but they didn't. And so I just went with the crowd. Why? Because I didn't want to be any different. Can I tell you something? In my early, late teens and then into my 20s, I thought of Rob frequently. And then when I came to Christ, God said, I want you to reach out to him and I want you to apologize to him. And I said, no. I heard Rob was 6'5 and about 250 pounds and a state policeman. And I, I, I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And you know, God is this relentless hound of heaven. Do you know that? When he actually kind of pokes you with something and says, uh, you need to pay attention to this, we'll go, oh, I'll do it later. And he goes, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here. So he brought it back to mind again, and again, and again, and again. And it was about 10 years before I picked up the phone and called Rob Rockwell. I called, I called him, and he, I, he said, uh, Hello, and I said, Rob, this is Jeff Smith. He goes, well, I know quite a few Jeff Smiths. Which one are you? I said, really? <laughs> Surprise. I said, I'm the one from Silverspross Road. And he responded, he said, oh, what do you want? I said, Rob, you've been on my mind for years. I said, I'm just calling to let you know that I'm really sorry. I said, Rob, you got picked on when we were kids, and I should have done something for you. I should have stood up for you. I should have said something. I said, this has been eating at my heart for years. Will you please forgive me, Rob? I'm so sorry. Silence on the other end of the phone. He goes, why would you do this? I said, Rob, because somebody named Jesus Christ forgave me of all my sins. And I said, I've just been feeling called by God to call you. I'm so sorry. He said, Jeff, he said, you're blowing my mind right now. He said, I forgive you. And Rob and I started a relationship that we carry on to this day. And I get to come alongside of this brother in the Lord because he now knows the Lord. But can I tell you something? It took me 10 years to obey God in that. How about you? Don't be dull. Don't take 10 years. Don't be sluggish. Do it today. If he's telling, go, go, <laughs> because the rewards are so great. Yes, his knife will cut deep, and yes, he will pierce your heart, and yes, you will feel like you are walking on air. You'll feel like you're just weak to the bones. And guess what you are? But he is strong. He's faithful. He's with you. He's in you, and he will never let you go. So, we can kind of drift from the word, we can doubt the word, we can become dull to the word, and we can despise the word. Now look, this ratchets it up a little bit. In, in 10, 26 through 39, this talks about willfulness against the word of God. I know what God says, but I adamantly refuse to do what he says. Listen, 26, this is chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is, if sins was left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, that's a hard word. And by the way, we're going to dig into that word more deeply in the weeks to come because that's a word that can be very misunderstood. He goes on to say, 
Look, how, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy the blood of the covenant that was sanctified for them? Oh my gosh. And who was insulted, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those are hard words. Let me help you understand a little bit what's going on here. First of all, there is a judgment for God's people. That judgment is based on what we do here on planet Earth that has to do with our fruitfulness. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It has to do with our fruitfulness. There's also a different kind of judgment for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And that judgment will result in people going off to eternal judgment in hell. Now, I don't say that with any sense of like, I don't know, I shake when I say that. I don't even want to say those words, but I'm just repeating what the Word of God says. So if you're here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, can I beg you to consider Him? Can I help you understand something? You don't even know what's going to happen when you walk out that door today. Your soul could be demanded of you this very day. And apart from Him, if the Scripture is right, You're headed to hell for eternity, and that is a place you do not want to go. But can I tell you the good news of Jesus Christ? He crawled up on a cross for you, and he shed his blood for you, that by his blood you have been cleansed from all of your sins. If you just believe and receive him into your heart, this is not a complicated thing. And it's not anything that you can do to be made righteous before God. He died and became sin for you that you now can become the righteousness of God by just asking him to come live in your heart. So if you're here today and you're at that place, all you need to do is say a simple prayer in your heart. By the way, he can read all of your thoughts. He's God. And you can just say it in the simplicity of your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, I admit I'm a sinner. I desperately need a Savior. Come into my heart, God, and make it your home. In your own words, you can say whatever you want to say because he knows your heart. You can just say, God, make me the man or the woman you intended me to be. God, I accept the payment you gave for me on the cross for my sins. However you want to phrase it, you can communicate with God in that way. And let me tell you something. Jesus says this, I will by no means ever turn away from anyone who calls out to me. Praise the Lord God. Praise the Lord God. So look, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, today's your day. But if you are in Christ Jesus and you're here, let me help you understand something. The scripture says that every single one of us will give an account. That includes those of us who are in Christ. Listen to what it says here. The Lord will judge his people. You you were once a people. You weren't a people and now you are a people, the scripture says. You're a people belonging to God. It says the Lord will judge his people. What's that mean? He will look at the works that you accomplished here on earth and determine the motives of your heart, how you lived. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. This is Paul. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood or hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. 
because the day, capitalized, day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. What he's saying is this. You can be saved, but not living your life in which a day that you're producing fruit. And what happens then is you get there, the judgment comes, and all of your works are burned up, and you escape into salvation, but only as one passing through the flames. The question is, do you want to be that one? Or do you want to be trusting the Lord today to actually stay in his word and trust him to work in and through you that your life is producing fruit for the kingdom of God? So we can, we can kind of drift from the Lord, doubt it. We can become dull to it, and we can defy the word. Despise it, and we can defy. So defying the word, chapter 12, verses 14 through 29, is a refusal to even hear. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, listen, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further would be spoken to them. This is the people of Israel were saying, God, we really want you to stop talking to us. We don't like what you're saying. How many of you ever had people say stuff to you that you didn't like when you were a little kid? Did any of you ever stick your fingers in your ear and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. Did you ever do that? Or am I alone? Who did that? All right, quite a few people. This one means you're doing that with God. And can I tell you something? That's never a wise decision to make. It actually aptly has some worldly application because you are to turn your back on words from the evil one that come to you from other people. But when it comes to God, he loves you. And the word he's trying to speak to you is words of life. And you should never stick your fingers in your art and ear and make la-la sounds to God. But so many of us respond to God that way. God says, lay it down. Trust me, I'm good. Now, I'm going to cut you because you got some cancer. And I wouldn't be a loving father if I didn't cut that stuff out of you, but yield yourself to my life. Yield myself to my word because my word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's going to divide joint and marrow, so and spirit. It's going to reveal the motives of your heart. Will you trust me in this? And so God was exhorting these Hebrews because they were slipping back into their old ways of religion, just like we do namely the Old Covenant. You see, they had been delivered from the law under Judaism. And they had been ushered into grace, but they started slipping back into the old religious ways, these worn-out practices and belief. And this was a great travesty because God had set them free with a better covenant, with a new covenant, a covenant that says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of works that no one can boast This is not of yourself. It's the work that Jesus did from you. You see, God gave the law so that we would be convicted of our sin and know we need a Savior. If you read those Ten Commandments and you ratchet it up with Jesus and he goes, I tell you the truth, it's not whether you kill somebody, it's whether or not you've ever raged in your head towards them. I tell you the truth, it's not that you actually had an adulterous relationship with a woman. I tell you the truth, if you ever took a woman or a man into your mind sexually, you've already done it. Which of us could stand? No one. 
And that's the point. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God made Jesus Christ sin for us that we now have become the righteousness of God. And his way is a better way than the old covenant. You see, this scripture talks about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priest. He's greater than the covenant that was the old one. His new covenant in his blood is better and eternal, where the old covenant of the blood of animals was temporary. And faith in Christ is superior by far to attempting to live out a religious lifestyle. The writer is saying, don't go back to the old ways. Trust Jesus. He by far is every way better than you are. Now, I need to look at my time because I've rambled quite a bit, and we haven't even started Hebrews 1 yet. (laughs) So we're going to start that now. Remember, this is a survey. So I want you to know that in the beginning of this book, the writer is just trying to affirm this. Jesus Christ is superior to all. He's your Lord. Now, look, we don't use words like Lord and Lady much anymore, right? Anybody ever call their husband a Lord? Every once in a while, it'd be nice, Trace, if you call me Lord. You would, you would say, good morning, my Lord, and I'd say, good morning, my lady. No? All right, well, maybe. You know what Lord means? Boss. Lord means boss. You have a boss in heaven. Now, he loves you like crazy, but he's the boss. So this writer is trying to say Jesus is the boss. Jesus is superior to every other way. He's superior to everything. You know, so let's go ahead and read. This is verse, verse 1, and I'll read through. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Stop. All things now belong to Jesus. Everything created belongs to him. He is Lord over all. And through him also he made the universe. He was there at the beginning. He is God. He's God himself. Listen to verse 3. This is your memory verse for this week. This is so beautiful, and this is so important. Listen. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Praise God. Wow. What's the writer saying? He's saying if you look at Jesus, you've seen God. He's saying that he is the exact representation of the being of God. Jesus said this about himself while on the planet. He says, look, if you've seen me, you've already seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. You know, some people make this ludicrous argument that Jesus never said he was God. Can I tell you something? He says it all over the place. Just read the scriptures. But can I tell you something else? This is why we killed him. Because he said he was equal to God. Do you remember Caiaphas being there and he's questioning the dude? And Jesus says, I am. And he says, you claim to be equal with God. He claimed to be the Messiah and he wrenches his clothing. He rips his clothing as a sign of heresy. And then off he goes to be scourged and hung on a cross, which is what he came to do for you and for me. He came to die for us. So he's saying here, look, if you look at Jesus, he is the exact representation of the being of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at the person of Jesus Christ. 
Because after he provided purification for sins, after he paid the price for our sins on the cross with his own blood, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now he starts to go into this comparative thing. Why? Because Hebrews, they placed great weight on angels as God's messengers. They even at times made the mistake of worshiping angels. He goes, now look, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today and I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. This is about the Son, Jesus Christ. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Verse 10, he also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never change. He's talking about God. He says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's saying, did God ever say that to angels? And yet God has said that about Jesus Christ. Verse 14, are not all the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Do you know what that's saying? That you have angels ministering to you. Praise the Lord. Praise God that you have angels ministering to you in your life. But you never worship those angels. Just worship the one who sent them, Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, God said all these things about Jesus, but he never said any of this stuff about angels or prophets. Jesus is greater. Can you say that? Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to all. And he wants you to hold Jesus in the highest place in your life. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Guess what? Jesus is your Lord, but Jesus is your brother. Why? Because he grafted in you into the family of God. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children that God has given me. And verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, listen, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free from those all their lives who were held in slavery by the fear of death death. How many of you will die? Can I tell you something? You don't have to fear that. If you are in Christ Jesus, you no longer have to be afraid of death. Paul says, O death, where is thy sing? O death, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ the Lord who gives us the victory. You guys have heard of the coronavirus, right? We should be praying for people in China and around the world that are being affected by that. But can I tell you something? If you're in Christ Jesus and that little virus comes into your body, and you start to go doobie-doo, down, 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 you got nothing to be afraid of. You're in Christ. Panic should be gone. No need for panic for you. Why? For you to live as Christ and for you to die as gain. 
Paul says, like, which one am I going to do? Which one's better? He's like, I don't know. I'm like a kid in a candy store. I want to stay here and I want to live for Christ. But for me to go home, oh my, that is going to be amazing. If you're in Christ Jesus, the victory has already been won for you. You cannot lose. And that robs the power of fear and death from you. You're called to live differently. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, in light of all that I have just told you about Jesus, in light of I've just told you about his superiority, in light of the fact that I've told you you've been delivered from death, in light of all of this, I want you to fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't look to the angels. Don't look to prophets. Don't look to religion. Do not look to Dr. Phil. He may have some good things to say, but he's not going to save you. The one who saved you is perfect, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the author and perfecter of your faith. Scripture says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Can I tell you something? God loves you. And as a result of this, he provides for you. He protects you. He guides you. And yes, he corrects you. Do not harden your heart towards his word. Do not become lazy in your pursuit of him because he is the one who is chasing after you. All you need to do is turn towards him and fix your eyes on Jesus. For if you do, I will guarantee you this. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of his glory and grace Let's stand and sing that together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. One more time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we see your face, we see your love. God, if we say we look at you and see condemnation or accusation, help us to fire that God and to turn to you because you are a God whose heart is consumed for us. You want us to be in heaven more than we want to be ourselves. You want to save us more than we want to be ourselves. God, you long for us. And your mercy and loving kindness chase after us all the days of our life. God, help us to fix our eyes on you. 
the author and perfecter of our faith because we know that the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. We submit ourselves to you now and ask God that we would yield ourselves to the scalpel of your word to stay this week and the days and weeks to come. We would show your image to the world more fully around us that you would be glorified right here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this all in the precious name of the one who is supreme above all, the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Let's close with